Now, if you notice the the title of this sermon is not something that you would normally expect. Um, as I've preached uh, every Christmas uh, message for the last twelve years, I I wanted to do something that was a little bit different because I've noticed that there are throughout the years many times when the Christmas story is given in a Christmas message that seems to take Jesus and presents him in a way that takes him from being humble to being oppressed. And we see that in this day and age especially, there are those who are the oppressors and those who are being oppressed. And, and yeah, it can be a very big deal. But in regard to the Christmas message, I remember when I was taught as a little boy, it was presented to me in such a way that I was almost made to feel sorry for the oppression of this little baby Jesus. Now, you might think to yourself, what's the harm in that? Didn't he come with humble means? Didn't he come uh, with those in authority trying to kill him? The answer to those questions is yes. But Let's look a little deeper into what this humility means and how this is interpreted, especially this day and age, by those who actually uh, define the, our society by what is called intersectionality. Intersectionality actually describes the way that different types of discrimination overlap uh, in a marginalized or oppressed person's experience. And so intersectionality biases people's judgment about truth or reality by mutually interlocking and reinforcing categories such as race and gender and class and health and sexuality. And we see this out in society. So it has the idea that a person's true identity is measured by how many victim statuses they can call their own. It's similar to critical race theory or CRT. And so it views the world through a lens of power dynamics with a person's social position best understood in terms of discrimination and disadvantage. So the more disadvantaged groups that you can identify with, the more oppressed you are. The more victim status a person has, the greater his or her insight and to authority to speak into the related justice or injustice. This standpoint epistemology claims that a person's lived experiences and social location provide sort of a Gnostic understanding of how the world really works. In other words, the standpoint epistemology is a theory for analyzing intersubjective discourses. Standpoint theology proposes that authority is rooted in an individual's personal knowledge and perspective and the power that such authorities exert. 
I hope to show you how this has crept into the church in a big way, even in the Bible stories and accounts that we find in the Lord Jesus' birth. Historically, intersection theory has primarily focused on the intersection of race, gender, and has been used as a framework on, on how, to, uh, how systems of oppression work and, uh, and, and do not affect individuals independently, but tend to intersect in ways that affect some individuals more than other individuals. Certain political and identity movements have bestowed this social status based on who is deemed to be the most oppressed, and that leads to fight over who gets higher rank on the hierarchy of victimization. Intersection theology, therefore, becomes a weapon to bludgeon rivals and to squash dissent. This intersectionality is a jockeying for status, not for status upward, but status downward. The more oppressed I am, the more I can tell you how oppressed and how you are oppressing me. So this leads to uh, a lot of um, discrimination. This leads to a lot of looking at the different classes. So I want to try to figure out how that has come into play when we talk about the Christmas story. And I pray that God will, will use this message for us to get a better understanding. So let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. It's found in Luke chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were complete for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her first son, firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. 
For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angel, angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at the, those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were complete for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, before... I get into this text, I, I just want to mention that this isn't going to be the normal verse-by-verse -verse, uh, message that you're used to hearing. This morning, I'd like to do uh, give a better perspective on the humali uh, hu humility of Christ, not as a victim, but as the victor. You see, God planned the birth, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, even before the foundation of the world. And this was all a fulfillment of prophecy that was made centuries before the birth of Christ. And this, we see this plan unfolding, and it is a plan of God that is absolutely amazing. You go from the manger and you go forward through his life and you realize that the whole purpose for his life would be that he would give that righteous, perfect, sinless life as a sacrifice for our sins. That his birth had a view toward Golgotha, had a view toward Calvary from the very beginning. That there was a plan that was unfolding throughout this whole birth story and to realize that his birth is a reflection of the character of God toward us his love his grace his patience his kindness all toward unworthy sinners toward us guilty in our sin and our guilt and our rebellion and all those things that pollute and corrupt our very existence. All of that. Christ came with a view of taking that away. Not only that, but taking it upon himself that we might be forgiven and that we might go free. 
So when we remember the birth of Christ and we remember who our Lord truly is, truly the most wonderful news that we could come, that could come to our weary ears, is to realize that there is hope that transcends this life. That there is hope that transcends our present difficulties and experiences. There is hope between, beyond this weary load that we carry day to, from day to day, week to week, from month to month. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and in Him coming as a babe, we see it revealed. We have that which transcends the world, which transcends our guilt, which transcends our sorrow of this life. What we have is a Christ who is our all in all. And so I want to make this so very clear that it's always clear in our minds that Bethlehem has a destination of the cross. And not to look at the manger nativity in isolation, but to view it as a purpose for, for which God did this. You know, if you were thinking about it, just trying to understand and glimpse into the mind of God and why he would go and make a, such a fuss to come to earth and leave heaven as the Son of God did. There's got to be meaning behind it. Because if all he did was, was come just to, to humble himself and be this, this child and die and there's nothing that happened, that would be meaningless. And we know that that is not the case. So we need to understand the true significance of this babe in a manger. Not with pity. It's not to look upon that babe in the manger with pity because, folks, you and I are the ones that are to be pitied. I want us to glance at the manger, the manger, not as we glance down to see the Christ child as who really made something of himself, but the one who made himself in the likeness of humanity in order to be the, our propitiation and to make something for himself. So let's go ahead and... and See how this all came to pass. So if you look again at Luke chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now the first thing that you might be thinking is, how horrible is this, this man Joseph, that he would take Mary and travel with her while she was getting ready to, ha to have a baby. That's the first intersection that I want to deal with. It's this 
verse that gives us the impression that Joseph and Mary were traveling at the last minute and turned away by an innkeeper. Well, let's back up just a little bit. Look at verses 4 through 7. Here it says, Joseph always also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And then look at what it says. It says, So it was that while they were there, the days were complete for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so we see it says while they were there, the days were complete. It doesn't suggest that Joseph dragged his nine-month pregnant uh, wife, uh, betrothed wife, all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem and just arriving in the nick of time for Mary to give birth to Jesus. But you see, it says they went back to the place of their lineage. Folks, it's back to the place where Joseph came from. They would have been staying with family. So again, in verse 7, we get the idea that since the inn was full, that there was no other place to bear a child, that she delivered Jesus in a stable? If you'd please turn to Luke chapter 22 and verses 10 through 12. Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 10. And he, that being Jesus, said to them, Behold, when you have entered this the city, a man will greet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. Do you see in verse 11 there? where it says guest room. The Greek word is is kataluma. Guess what it means? It means a place of lodging, a guest room, an inn. It is the same word that we see in Luke 2.7. And they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the kataluma. In the inn. Now we need to understand, typically a house would have had two levels. The upper level would have been for dining and sleeping. The lower level would have been uh, for work and fellowship. And then there would have been a portion that would have been sectioned off for animals because at night they would have been brought in to ensure that they wouldn't have run away or be stolen. And so that's where the manger would have been. Now you need to remember that This was going back to the town of Joseph's uh, 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 birth and and where he was raised. 
along with all of his relatives that had moved away. They, were, they would have probably been there. So Mary, because of all of that, she probably would have rather had the baby down in that lower level because of all the other family members in, rela- in relation that were there to also be registered for the census. Joseph already showed us that he had love and commitment to Mary. It, he said this, he, he wanted to actually, before he, he understood what the pregnancy was about, he said that uh, he would put her, uh, uh, put her away secretly. But remember what it says about that. Um, please turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. I'm going to have you turn a lot because I want to see, have you see a lot of this. Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning before they had a, a, a sexual relation, she was found with with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make, a, make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. You see, Joseph was, was going, you know, I really do love this, this woman. I don't understand, and I don't want her to have the scorn of having public example made out of her. But if you look at verses 20 and 21, Joseph was given direction as to why he should be her husband. There it says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Joseph was not an an oppressor, oppressing this poor Mary. Joseph was a just man going, I don't want to disgrace this woman, Mary. And so anyway, we find that Jesus was born in a home, not in a barn. He was laid in a manger. I don't want to gloss over this point. This would not have been a normal circumstance. This was for a reason, and we'll see that in a minute. But Jesus was born in the most humble of means. He would have been in the area of the house that would not have been normal for a child to be born. And this was indeed a humble place to have a child. And also, don't let this change your view of the humility of Christ. Because instead of being born in a palace to a king, he was born in a humble dwelling, born to common parents. If you please turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we get a clear view of this picture. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11.
starting with verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I like what MacArthur says about this. We often say that it is the name Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every name shall bow. It's at the name of Lord Lord, he is Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so with the telling of the story, so often, even with well-meaning people, they put a spin on Jesus' birth as if he was the victim of everything and everyone. But if we see there, it says he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself and becoming obedient even to the point of death. This is important as we, as we live amongst an age which increasingly is hostile to Christian thought, to Christian ideas and Christian ethics. People are just looking for anything and everything to justify their own cause, and telling the story of Jesus' birth as one who was not in control, but one who was under oppression of these privileged few. It's just so important for us to remember that, that we believe, uh, what we believe and what we proclaim are not old wives' tales or fables. They're not clear, cleverly designed stories all to amuse and entertain people with. What we believe, what we know, what our hope rests on is the firm, grounded reality of Scripture. Jesus Christ really did come from heaven to live on earth, and that is verified by hundreds of of witnesses that saw him and heard him after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says that there were over 500 witnesses at that time. These things are undeniable. And the fact is that this Christ child who was born of humble means, we can't, we can't start to think that he at that point came into existence. Folks, he eternally existed. And he didn't only eternally exist but he created everything and everyone that ever was or lived. Think about this one. He created Mary, his earthly mother. 
In fact, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We always need to keep this in balance as best we can. The emphasis on Christ's humanity does not deny his deity. Jesus Christ is fully God. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it was the second person of of the triune Godhead that took on humanity. Christ was fully cognizant of his full equity within the triune Godhead and was willing to leave the glories of heaven and did so in order to take on human flesh. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. He left that exalted position for a time on earth and he took on the role and form and nature of human flesh being made in the likeness of men. And as we've asked in the past and we ask again this morning, there's one question that seems to plague us. Is how in the depths of the mind the love of God, the eternal plan of God, there's one, one simple question is why Why would Christ do that? I mean, it would be contrary to self-interest to abandon heaven, to come down to live like us, to identify with us, and to do so knowing that it would lead to Jerusalem, that it would lead to your ultimate crucifixion in seeming shame and dishonor. Why would you do that? Why would God devise such a plan? that Christ would leave the glory of heaven to come to take on human flesh? Well, here's your first answer. It's to be our mediator. To be our mediator with God. And I'll tell you what, we need a mediator. You and I need a representative before God because we're not fit to go before God on our own. As a matter of fact, we see in our study in in Isaiah 6, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, God Almighty. There is a gap and it's an infinite chasm of a gap between your essence as a sinful person, as as a sinful man or woman, and the infinite holy God. Exodus 15:11 says, "Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders?" We are creatures of flesh, finite, limited knowledge, limited ability, 
And God is infinite in holiness and, maj- and majesty and glory. So much so that the Shekinah glory surrounds him and em- emanates from his, his dwarfing and uh, from him dwarfing and consuming all of those who are around him. Hebrews 12, 29 actually says, for our God is a consuming fire. None of us are even close to that. We're not even in the picture. So how can we ever be reconciled to the Creator when there's such a gap in our essence, our very essence? There's no answer to that apart from Christ. That gap in essence, is compounded by a spiritual gap, though. There's a spiritual division between you and God, and that spiritual gap is caused by our sin. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear you. So you're... The gap is so huge because of you being created and him being the creator. Now it says that the gap is even bigger because of you being sinful and him being absolutely holy. There should be a a drawing upon our our minds of how just profound this, this measure, this aspect of our existence really truly is. God, holy and majestic, infinite creator, you, finite creature. Where is there any basis for fellowship at all there? God, holy and separated from sin. You, lost in your sin, actually, at times, lover of sin. You as a Christian are still corrupted by the remaining remnants of sin. Where can we ever find communion with God who made us? You could live a thousand lives and never pay for one sin, let alone a multitude that you've committed. As a matter of fact, if you lived a thousand lives to try to pay for the sin, what you would do is compound the sin that you already had. You wouldn't step one closer. You would actually have more. So you would end up being uh, worse off than when you began. The point of this is that we need help. We are helpless. We are lost. We are separated from God. We need help if our sins are to be forgiven. You need help if you're ever going to be in the presence of this awesome and holy God. You need help if you're ever going to see him face to face from that understanding then what Scripture says is the purpose of God, of the purpose of Jesus Christ is absolutely glorious. I want to try to encourage you though with pastoral encouragement that We struggle in this darkness of sin. We struggle in this life. 
There are times when we have such regret over past sin, we can hardly bear it. We think about our very nature and our existence. It's so sin-tinged and sin-tainted. We just feel the weight of it. I want you to look. The entire reason Christ came was to deal with that, to take that burden, to take away that guilt and shame, to remove that wall of separation, to remove that barrier so that you would have free access to God, so that that is what you need to see. What you need to see as remember the coming of Christ is that he is indeed our mediator. The reason he came was to remove that impediment from your fellowship with God, to replace that sense of guilt with a sense of peace, a sense of reconciliation, a sense that things have been made right by someone outside of you. And so that in Christ, that very weight of sin is removed as you trust in him. Now, we do have times where we go, Lord, I have that weight. And that's okay, folks. Just so you turn to the cross. Just so you get to the point where you realize that he came. Because that having remembrance of that from time to time helps us understand what he did. I've said this many times. She loved much because she had been forgiven much and she knew how much she had been forgiven. We need to remember how much we have been forgiven. We need to put our faith in Christ and to realize that the biggest, most serious need of our human life has been resolved. That's why Christ came. It means that the guilt that has plagued you, the vain regrets over the past, don't have to define us moving forward. Our, 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 our perspective on life going forward should be and must be shaped by that Christ came into this world to save sinners like us. But there are some people that have that mindset, but I'm such a bad sinner. I've done so much. I've greatly sinned against him. You know what? You're right. You have. I get that. But the Apostle Paul said that he was the foremost of, of sinners, and Christ came to save him. And if he could save the greatest sinner, surely he can save the lesser sinner like you and I. If the purpose of Christ could include the greatest sinner like Paul, then it can include everyone else. But there comes a point where in trusting Christ, you say, my sin indeed is great. The blackness of my prior life was profound. But faith means that you look beyond your sin and look to the one who took your sin away. That Christ came in order to save you from that.
and to sit there and and continually say, but uh, I'm too great a sinner for God to to save, for God to say to forgive. Don't think that way. And thinking that way, you're denying the incarnation. You're denying the cross. Rather, you need to humble yourself and realize that as great as your sin is, the sacrifice, the merit, and the glory of righteousness, the love of Christ is even greater than that. And he, he came that you might humbly receive him. Humbly receive the forgiveness that he alone gives to all those who repent and believe and trust in him. So don't please don't look at his hum, humility, humility as weakness. Look at his humility as your strength of salvation. If you please turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see, Christ came in human flesh so he could offer the sacrifice to God for forgiveness of your sin and my sin. It took a human sacrifice to be the substitute for sin. Without that, there would be no redemption because Scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Christ had to become a man Christ get, gladly became a man so that he could have righteous human blood to offer up to God as a propitiation for your guilt and shame and for your sin in violation of his law. Please turn to Galatians chapter 4. Verse 4. This talks about the birth of Christ. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now watch this. It is for this purpose to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus was born of a woman in order that he might redeem us from the requirements of God's law. So he was born as a man that he might redeem us from the requirement that God's law places on men. He lived in perfect obedience to that law. He shed his blood and he and a righteous merit 
to his life and his shed blood is because of that he is now able to share that with everyone who comes and believes in in him for salvation everyone who trusts in him alone who puts their faith in christ alone for redemption and that's why he became a man to become our substitute for sin if you please turn to hebrews chapter 2 You see, he lived his life in this way to satisfy the wrath of God and to offer an acceptable sacrifice. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he, he had to be made like his brethren, and that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He had to share in our humanity. God the Son took on human flesh with the goal of death, with the goal of propitiation, so that he might offer a sacrifice that would appease the wrath of God. So he took on that human flesh in order for himself to be that sacrifice. What a wonderful thing. He's the priest that offers the sacrifice, and yet he's the sacrifice himself. And he offered himself up for our redemption. Folks, we need a human sacrifice for sin. That's something that we're not qualified to offer. No one other than Christ is ever qualified to offer. And so Christ stepped in as the only one with the essence of God and the qualification of being a man to be able to do that. He stepped in that gap, gladly offered that sacrifice on the cross. Christ in his earthly life, in the midst of his affliction, looked to his Father and entrusted him. He entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. I hope that we see that that should be the pattern of life that we have. As difficult as life gets, I hope that we, like Christ, are saying, I'm going to trust you, that you will work out a way that pleases you and that is good for me in your own time. Father, I want to know I am content. I want you to know I am content that Christ loves me 
and gave himself up for my soul. I am content to be reconciled to you. And I'm grateful. And that is enough to satisfy my longing heart. Hebrews 4, 14 through 18 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we, we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about the humanity of Christ. He said this in his exposition of Psalm 88. And Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. He said that he had been afflicted with great stress and depression. And this is what Spurgeon says about himself. Quote, He who now feebly expounds these words knows within himself more than he would care to tell of inward anguish. I know more about inward anguish than I would care to say. It is an unspeakable consolation that our Lord Jesus knows this experience, having, having with the exception of the sin of it, felt it all in Gethsemane when he was exceedingly sorrow, even unto death. Folks, the fact is, Jesus does understand. He does care. He will help. And he is not to be pitied in the, perf the perfection of his incarnation. We are to be most pitied, our fallen humanity. But here's the greatest thing. Jesus, who being in the form of God, uh, being God in the form of humanity, came to heal us and make us clean. Something that we are not able to do. We don't come to Jesus once we feel worthy. We come to him and he makes us worthy through his own righteousness. So again, looking at our text in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Now there were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angel 
had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at these, those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. This was prophesied 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That name Emmanuel is translated God with us. And so Isaiah said, I will give you a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. What does Luke 2.12 say? And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. But this was a sign in different way as well. Here's another point that we should consider as we break down any other intersectional barriers. Shepherds practically lived with the sheep and the goats that they tended. They were considered unclean by Jewish standards. But the angel said, that the Christ child could be found in a manger. This meant he slept where the animals slept. And so they could go right into the place where this Christ child was placed and see the Messiah for themselves. You see, these, these shepherds, they weren't scholars. They weren't important at all. They weren't even able to be invited to the palace or enter the temple without a bath. But here we have these lowly shepherds who were the first to hear the good news that a Savior King was born for all people. Christ, God made Christ accessible to all people. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are one in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. I'd like to only make one more point of intersection here as we finish up. That a lot of people say that Jesus, this Christ child, uh, Joseph and Mary were, were refugees. So I'd like to have you turn to Matthew chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15. We have to realize we live in a day where this is hot. This is to where they try to break down the gospel. They try to um, take away what all of this is, is meaning and saying. Here, starting with verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. 
When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there till the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I call my son. There are times when people tell you that Jesus is a refugee and they normally do this to score political points about uh, uh, illegal immigration or what, whatever. Um, matter of fact, Alexandria, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, known as AOC, she said this in a post. She said, for all the anti-immigration pundits uncomfortable with and denying that Jesus, our Christ family, were refugees too. So she's trying to make a point that, well, you know, this poor little, you know, even Jesus, he's a refugee. She adds a picture of a refugee mother holding the child. This is what the United Nations defines refugees as. People who have fled war, violence, conflict, or persecution and having crossed an international border to find safety in another country. They often had to flee with little more than the clothes on their back, leaving homes, possessions, jobs, and loved ones. So does Jesus and his family fit this criteria? Maybe in some ways. Given that Joseph and his family were fleeing to escape the wrath of Herod, and that may mean that, yeah, they're, they're refugees, but let's, let's notice the difference here. Jesus and his family never left the Roman Empire. They fled Bethlehem and went to Egypt, which was uh, more than likely to the Jewish settlement at Alexandria. It's still within the Roman Empire. That means they stayed among their own people within a thriving community. And probably they used the gifts of the Magi to pay for their stay. And so um, it says in Matthew 2, 2, 19 through 20, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. You see, folks, this is fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, where it talks about the Messiah. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then in verse 23 of Matthew, it says, And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so most of the people like AOC who advocate for illegal immigration using Jesus as their poster child, you know what they're also advocating for? Murder of unborn children, the re re redefining of marriage. I'll tell you what, they're more on the side they're not really on the side of Jesus. They're more on the side of Herod, right? They try to act Christian, try to bring Jesus into this. Listen to what Tom Asko, the Founders Ministry, says. He says, um, and I quote, intersectionality operates on a sub-Christian worldview that makes no account for God's sovereignty over his creation 
or his prerogative to order it however he chooses. Intersectionality emphasizes the way that people differ from each other while ignoring, if not rejecting altogether, what the Bible says about the commonality of the human race. This commonality is seen in three critical ways as taught in Scripture. First, all people are created in God's image. We are all responsible creatures who have come from the same Creator. Secondly, we have all sinned against our Creator. The Apostle Paul spends the bulk of his first three chapters of Romans establishing this point. He emphatically declares, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Intersectionality says, ah, but there are distinctions, many of them, and they are very important if you're going to help people with their real problems in this world. The third way that intersectionality undermines the Bible's teaching is downplaying, if not outright rejecting, the oneness that Christians have with each other because of our union with Christ. To be in Christ is to be spiritually united to all who are in Christ. It is to belong to the family of God. It is to have God as our Father and other Christians as brothers and sisters, end quote. So I hope that through this whole thing, you've seen that these, this whole trying to make Jesus as a, a, a helpless, poor babe in a circumstance that he never would have been asking for, He's some poor, single, working-class Jewish man born in, in Bethlehem in a stable rather than in a palace. I want to let you know that no one suffered more injustice or experienced more oppression for less. But victims everywhere will find solidarity in this man. He had unimaginable privilege because he was God in the flesh. And he used that to serve and save those without it. He was flogged. And even while he was flogged, he was upholding the universe by the power of his word. He fully is fully God. And he was even when he took that towel in that basin and washed the disciples' feet. Even as he lay in the manger on that great night, he was upholding the universe by the power of his word. Don't forget that as we read the story of Christ's birth during this Christmas season, that he was born God incarnate with the purpose of being the only Savior of the world. And if we want to get into race, let me tell you, don't buy into what they say. Know that you are part of a chosen race made up of all individuals who were chosen. Your first identity that you have is that God chose you.
not because of your ethnicity, not because of your privilege or lack thereof, not because of any other qualification. God chose you for his own good purpose and pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus as a babe. We thank you for his humility. We thank you for the immenseness of your kindness, the unfathomable depths of, of humility. We were humbled that he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross, and now is highly exalted and that you have bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, our Lord, every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven, on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. We confess that this takes us back to that question. Why? But we know it was for your good pleasure. And for that we are forever and eternally thankful. That you would bless us as we look to you by faith. And we pray this in his most glorious and precious name. Amen.